Yale Podcast Network. This is the Yale Environmental Dialogue, a podcast that is exploring solutions to a more sustainable future. Welcome to the Yale Environmental Dialogue podcast. I'm Dan Esty, Professor of Environmental Law and Policy at Yale, and I'm pleased to be joined today by my colleague Jeff Sonnenfeld, a Professor of Management at the Yale School of Management, where he's also the Associate Dean for Leadership Studies. We're going to discuss today approaches to environmental law and policy that promote an emphasis on innovation, which I've argued is perhaps the most important conclusion from the 20th century research on what it takes to have a healthy organization and a thriving enterprise. In the new book, A Better Planet, 40 Big Ideas for a Sustainable Future, I make the case that this goal will be best achieved by moving away from traditional top-down environmental regulation and really thinking about new approaches that get us beyond the 20th century model of command and control approaches to regulation toward much more of an emphasis on market mechanisms, economic incentives, uh, and frankly, new ways of engaging the public, the business community, and all of the parties that have to be part of an environmental progress towards a sustainable future. So the emphasis on innovation really comes from my study over many years of what worked and frankly what didn't work uh, through the 1900s and up to recent years in terms of environmental progress. And I think we all know that the environmental arena has been now stuck for better than 25 years with a model that grew out of the early efforts of the 1960s and 70s to create a framework of federal law one of the things we now know is that the federal government can't do it all on its own. We need state and local governments, and frankly, we need more than government involved in the effort to deliver uh, a better energy future, a more sustainable approach to air and water and waste. And with that emphasis, we know we need uh, not only multiple layers of government, but the business community and individuals involved. From my point of view, what's critical here is to think about the structure of incentives that we need to drive innovation. A structure of incentives that gets all of the creative spirits across our society thinking about what they can do, and particularly those in business, imagining not only how they can reduce their own footprint in their own companies, but also how they can solve their customers' environmental and energy and more broadly sustainability challenges. So I do think we want to think about not only technology development, which has been huge in recent years, although surprisingly little focused on the environmental arena, but also beyond the needs of renewable uh, electricity, renewable power, more energy efficiency, the supporting technologies that will be required for a transformed, decarbonized future. Things like better transmission lines, batteries and storage, microgrids, a whole set of breakthroughs that would allow us to really move towards uh, a clean energy future. I think we also know that it's not just going to be uh, governments that are going to do this, but we need to make sure that businesses are thinking about how they play a critical role. And frankly, we need to think about how money will flow to the investments that need to be made. So it's going to require not just technology innovation, but innovation in government policies, innovation in the incentives that those create, innovation in finance that brings us new flows of capital, and of course, innovation for the public. How do we get the public engaged in this push? Uh, We know that the current view is most people think of themselves as engaged with the environment when they vote. We need people to see themselves as engaged when they're consuming. We need green consumers and green investors who are steering their money towards companies that are more sustainable and away from ones that are a problem. 
And of course, we're going to need new partnerships working across some traditional divides. So I think we do have the potential here, as I describe it, from moving from the 20th century approach to environmental regulation. It was all about telling people, including the business world, what not to do. It was about red lights and stop signs. Today, we know we need a structure that is remade to include those red lights, telling people what they absolutely must not do, but also a whole set of green lights, uh, providing a guidance to the world, to the entrepreneurial spirits, to the business community, and to every individual about what we need them to do, and particularly where we need them to devote their creative possibilities, uh, delivering innovation across this full spectrum of arenas that need to be rethought and remade for a 21st century that's more sustainable than we were in the 20th century. And with that, let me turn to my colleague, uh, Jeff Sonnenfeld. Jeff, you've been thinking about some of these problems for a very long time, and I know you and I have debated them now for a couple of decades, but give me your sense of what it's gonna take to move us towards a more sustainable future. Well, Dan, thanks. Uh, I uh, wanna congratulate you on the new book. It's in a really important contribution, your own work in the new book, but the collection of colleagues you brought together is extraordinary, and nothing uh, says more than the value of this book, then the back jacket has this wonderful endorsement from the president of France, just buried in the mix of all these others, uh, instead of it being you know, emblazoned on the front page, is because there are so many fantastic people standing around this book, and some of our other colleagues, even at Yale, that have joined you with some tremendous contributions in there. But uh, aside uh, from the star power of what you again bring to this, is the positive attitude that this book and, and you and your co-authors bring. The era that you talk about um, in, in one seminal essay that you have, uh, oddly enough, that you've authored in your own book that happened to be, I think, um, particularly inspiring, it goes further than the, I thought, very positive spirit of Green to Gold, which is, uh, I mean, gold, uh, Green to Gold, which is your, uh, very important earlier work that basically said that the punitive point of view that helped begin so much of this, as again your essay in this book reminds us, that that you were arguing green to gold migrates to um, that um, the basically the sustainable solution uh, can often be uh, the much uh, more cost-effective solution so that there is a financial incentive. And that was you know very important, taking a look at how um, doing good is not antithetical to doing well. And, and uh, it may sound strange to, to listeners that so many of us think that way today, but at the time that book came out, that was considered a revolutionary thought. Uh, and, and there are authors in this book uh, thinking, say, just to flag some of the uh, Yale colleagues you have in this book, the chapter uh, right after yours, in fact, I believe, by uh, Julie Zimmerman and Paul Anastas, goes into some tremendous specificity on your theme of innovation and what some companies have done when unleashed that can do very well for the companies. And again, it's not this punitive uh, aspect, this negative aspect. What's different now, though, in this book than from, from green to gold is uh, it's, uh, it's taking a look at how you could not only eke out a few penalties and not lose on this and maybe do okay, but getting into almost, uh, you know, maybe I'm biased as I went through it because of my own field in organizational behavior, is that it really takes a look at the human side of this, the organizational side of it, and how creativity is unleashed. And in a, a couple of the chapters, it really takes a look at how creativity is unleashed across boundaries, across 
uh, government and business boundaries, but also among, uh, you know, to the extent we have time to even talk about some examples here, among peers in a sector and even across you know, sectors in interesting ways. And I think that is um, a next stage moving forward, is not just saying, well, great, laws and rules were um, a, a coercive incentive to pay attention, and then making money was a positive incentive, but also the how-to now as you get to it in terms of unleashing creativity and innovation is so important. You, you spark a, um, more than just a top-down view. You and I in the past maybe could be accused of having too much of a top-down view, and um, you wisely moved ahead, and I'm still frozen back in time saying, I still like to see the value system of the CEOs and the board engaged here. So I'd love to address that a little bit in our discussion today too, how that's still moving forward, even on a top-down point of view. But as you say, we've been on this a long time. I should mention that uh, you are so old that we've known each other 40 years on this front. Can you believe it's 40 years since I first met you in 1978? And then I know uh, about a dozen years later, we, we met, of course, in a bus in Japan, going off uh, talking about the same front. Uh, but I wrote this book, Corporate Views of the Public Interest, and I was looking in particular at the forest products industry and looking at, um, at good guy companies. At that time, Weyerhaeuser was known in their ads as the tree growing people. Where did they come up with that label? It was focus groups that came back at them from uh, consumers and environmentalists. Everybody except the Sierra Club, which still had some issues with Weyerhaeuser. Everybody else was calling them the tree growing people. By contrast, Georgia Pacific, which is a way better company now, but four, four CEOs back, it wasn't so great. And they were known as the rapists of the land, as they would slash and burn their way across the country as direct competitors. They would leave a trail of disaster. And uh, you, uh, Weyerhaeuser, if they could, if they could selectively cut uh, to a stand of trees and leave, leave, leave some uh, uh, protection along the riverbanks, they would do so to not have water erosion. Georgia Pacific wouldn't care. So you know, Jeff, you've um, highlighted some of the ways the world has changed in the years that we've been having this conversation about how you engage the business community, how you push policy to lead us towards a, a more sustainable future. One of the things that I think is most impressive in recent months has been the business roundtable's decision to reframe what it thinks the core corporate mission should be. And frankly, that aligns with one of the arguments I've made in the book, which is that we should anticipate in the years ahead the end of externalities. It's no longer going to be acceptable as a business or even as an individual to have harm that you're generating spilled onto your neighbors or the society more broadly. And that increasingly, I think people are going to be asked to pay for that harm or stop it. And I think that's going to come in the form of a variety of things, some of which may be mandates in the old top-down style. But I think increasingly a good bit of it will be price signals. Uh, and in this uh, Better Planet book that's just come out, we do have an essay from our colleague Bill Nordhaus right. arguing that the real solution to climate change is to put a price on those greenhouse gas emissions, make people pay for the harm they're causing, and that'll inspire a lot of innovation. It'll mean that every company is thinking every day how to do its operations while bringing down its emissions. And frankly, the people that are best at that will come up with ideas that they can sell to others. I, I'm so glad you mentioned the Bill Nordhaus chapter because there is historically some irony around it. Not only is he a great uh, colleague of ours and last year's uh, Nobel Prize winner in economics, so we want to celebrate that too. But you'll recall at the time that he pioneered that approach, some people were confused because he has a long history as a very rigorous uh, mathematical economist, but a progressive-minded person. 
And yet, that approach that he was taking to the marketplace was captured by conservatives at that time. And uh, how amazing it is that um, in, uh, in just a, basically a handful of years, that perspective has been dropped by conservatives and become a, a strictly a liberal or progressive point of view and what Nordhaus stood for in terms of those incentives because a marketplace solution was considered by many progressives to be too tall in order, too long a time to wait, and that the, the punitive uh, regulatory approach would be bring about faster action. So I'm glad you raised that. If you weren't here with two colleagues right now, though, I would have leaped across our table and given you a big hug for raising the business roundtable issue because I'm almost hoarse in the, the last uh, almost two months now since they've come out with their edict talking about multiple constituencies and impact on the community. Because as you know, but not many uh, listeners, and surely a lot of people on CNBC and a lot of the business media uh, readers and viewers didn't realize they're merely catching up to state of the practice, to prevailing practice of a lot of the business community. Right now, much of the business community is not lagging here, but the Business Roundtable gives a wonderful certification on sustainability issues and some other forward-thinking measures where the business community has been almost, at, not almost, has been ahead of government and other factors for various reasons right now. And I think it's really important to celebrate them for this. When you were talking about moving past the punitive aspect and you talked about green to gold, you talked about, oh, and in your essay again now, you talk about the Cuyahoga River, which caught on fire in, in Ohio, and that was a you know, big issue. There was something called the Tennessee value of drums that only you and I may still remember, but was a, a, a horrible hazardous waste disaster. Uh, and then of course, the, the infamous Love Canal problem of Hooker Chemical, a division of, of, the, of Occidental Petroleum in uh, an earlier era that irresponsibly uh, ruined these communities, uh, that uh, the Business Roundtable formed in part as a reaction to some of those issues. So rather than, than them being a reactionary force, in fact, sustainability issues, as we were calling them environmental, and this was at the time of uh, just months after the first Earth Day, this was 1972 that they formally launched, uh, that um, they were leaders on this front. In fact, DuPont, um, the old original DuPont, whose sustainability record wasn't perfect, but uh, like a lot of the companies we work with, they were trying. And Irving Shapiro of DuPont, in fact, uh, led uh, the, a, a very positive approach from the business community, including the Business Roundtable, on the Superfund cleanup. And, and that showed a new path for business leaders. Instead of to reflexively fight against things on the sustainability side, how can they become a leader on it? And rocketing forward to today, uh, uh, right, right above Macron, I don't remember above, right around them, I think it was above, but right around them, you have the current CEO of Unilever. And, and you also have uh, some endorsements and some work from the, the former CEO of Unilever mentioned in there, Paul Pullman. And what a fabulous example that is, not pushed by anything negative, but that spirit of invention that you talk about. As uh, Paul Pullman, uh, had, uh, uh, as, as, as CEO, has so effectively uh, changed their, 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 their environmental footprint. They source 100% of their agricultural raw materials from sustainable sources. Uh, they've, uh, their sustainable brands, their sustainable living brands, grew 50% in the rest of their portfolio. They have uh, cut out uh, basically zero non-hazardous waste added to landfill. 
which is really you know, amazing. And they've done quite a bit on the, the packaging front as well. Uh, in fact, they created the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, which is uh, very exciting. And uh, it is uh, having the environmental footprint uh, of, of their products. We could turn so many other companies, thinking of maybe one who you, you didn't squeeze an endorsement because you've used her so many other times, Indra Nui of PepsiCo, and this is sustained by her, her new successor, is what PepsiCo has done in terms of, um, of, uh, of responsible water use and, uh, uh, and, flex and, and packaging, uh, incredibly uh, uh, creative uh, of ideas for how to reuse packaging, you know, coming out with, with, um, with uh, reusable packaging that's made out of potato husks that they would use for all the things that I shouldn't be eating that they make. Uh, but they've also changed on nutritionally. They've also dramatically changed their their portfolio. And, and PepsiCo's brand term for it all was was uh, was performance with purpose. Uh, and you can see that so many companies, uh, I you know, there's you had uh, done something heroic, if you don't mind the compliment, when you unified efficiently, but also in terms of effectiveness for sustainability, unified our own state, Connecticut State, as the Commissioner of Energy and Commissioner of Environment, putting these two big bureaucracies together and streamlining it, which some people thought was, I mean, all of us should have thought was great to cut out redundancies, but in fact, putting these two kinds of units together to spark innovative ideas. And what's of such frustration is on the national level, just in the last few weeks, and uh, uh, you know, you have a chapter in there where, 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 where Paul Anastas and Julie Zimmerman talk about breaking down barriers in the EPA. But Paul's talking about the good old days when the EPA was having um, problems with silo vision of all trying to do the, a good thing, but in, in divisive ways. Right now, they're, they're unified in ways that should horrify Paul and Julie by trying to roll back uh, progressive uh, improving. They use the progressive as a, as a uh, perhaps an emotionally laden term these days. But, but I think you also do see that some of these ideas, uh, particularly the systems analysis, systems thinking, and systems design that Paul and Julie are arguing for, right. uh, very much are part of what this 21st century structure needs to look like. Uh, it's bringing energy and environment together, recognizing that many of our residual environmental problems are a function of our energy choices. Uh, and until we have a decarbonized energy future, we're gonna continue to see that. But I do think getting people focused on ways to move towards sustainability has proven to be an interesting spur to innovation. And we're seeing that not only, as you say, in the business world, but now in the government world as well. And I think there's lots of opportunities. So even though it is a somewhat dark moment from an environmental point of view, at least uh, from the perspective of what's going on in Washington, I think there's lots of exciting ideas. A dark are, moment nationally, but and since we shouldn't over, overwork Commissioner Dan Esty as a great model, what can be done on a state level? Let's look at California. Obviously, they're an outlier in terms of, of, of often being a trendsetter in many fronts. But California, as, as probably most everybody listening to us now knows, had gotten an exemption from the Clean Air Act to raise standards even more on various fronts. And amazingly, this EPA nationally has fought then them to have uh, to not have that exemption and told them that they can't ask for more from the automakers. So what did four major automakers do? And I have to say some of these automakers have a lot of business problems like Ford Motor Company or the emission scandal of VW Volkswagen itself and uh, BMW and I think Honda is the fourth. 
is that they came together and said, it doesn't matter. We still want to work with California for these loftier standards because by pooling our research and our innovative thinking, we, and, and also providing some protective cover for each other, we think that we can actually meet a, an efficiency standard of 50 miles per gallon by 2026. The current standards, I think, are to re, are reach towards 37, and the, and the U, and EPA nationally wants to lower it to 37 or less. They're saying, no, we can hit the 50 miles. How great is that? And how's the national government responded? How's the EPA responded? By referral over to this administration's Justice Department's antitrust division to come after them for collusion. That would be like asking uh, by going after uh, Underwriters Lab for getting cell phone makers and, 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 and toaster makers and, and refrigerator companies to not voluntarily cooperate for safety standards so those devices don't catch on fire. For 150 years, Underwriters Labs have been doing that. I mean, it's a, so it's amazing. And yet they're still doing it moving forward, challenging the government. So I think we don't salute those business leaders enough that are doing things like that. We could look in your old space and two parts of the energy world you know so well. Energy exploration. Uh, just in the period of time that you've emailed me about get us getting together to have this conversation, we saw the EPA roll back uh, uh, the, the uh, standard setting uh, for natural gas exploration and, and petroleum uh, exploration companies uh, for the release of methane. Now, you would tell me, because I'm getting onto thin ice here, pun intended, when I uh, talk about the, the, the hazardous effect of methane, I understand it's perhaps 40 times worse, maybe shorter term effect, but still 40 times worse in, t uh, in terms of what uh, CO2 does. Uh, uh, for our protecting our environment is uh, the, those utility companies say, no, we, we're, we want to keep our standards. We've already invested in it and, we, and we're working towards it and we want to meet a new generation. They're aware of Gen Z putting pressure on them. And just like the auto companies want, are concerned out of some of its self-interest, it's not just the values of the leaders, but to sell to international markets, Europe in particular, that will have those standards that California has. And the utilities, those mean, nasty utilities where somehow, Dan, you, you always or most times found a positive way of appealing to them uh, on, on the mercury issues that, that they've had in, in some of their plants, is that they too are saying, as the EPA told them to roll back, uh, by name, the presidents. It turns out the presidents of a number of these companies happen to be women. Now, I'm sure that's just a coincidence, but it's interesting that they're taking positions, you know, hell no. Uh, that that it's hard to imagine that a lot of the environmentalist activists could be further out in front temporarily than on these three areas as certain automakers, uh, utilities, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and energy exploration companies are right now. It tends to be the larger companies, but still, I think it's a very exciting time. And in that old cliche that Milton Friedman, the Chicago economist, that the bottom line of business, that the only goal of business is the bottom line, the only objective should be the shareholders, the same 1970 New York Times Magazine essay where he wrote that, he also says two paragraphs later that in the longer term, however, it is in the interest of business to show concern for the well-being of their communities. They never quote that when right-wingers want to try to make a Frederick Hayek cliche or Ayn Rand cliche out of Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman was a bit more nuanced than that. It's like people who quote Rudyard Kipling saying east is east and west is west and never the twain shall meet. In fact, the poem says just the opposite or, or, or Robert Frost about, you know, good fences make good neighbors. The whole point of his poem is just the opposite way it's quoted. Milton Friedman is, is, is ideologically distorted and it's become a, a religion to certain people. 
But in actual practice, the business community is quite forward-thinking and innovative. So what we've seen, I think, and this is really perhaps the bottom line of our story today, is that that model of environmental protection that we thought about in the 20th century, which was very much top-down, focused on command and control, mandates from government, uh, really put the government in the not just the front seat, but the only seat of the sustainability car, has given way to a new model that is much broader in terms of who plays an important role. It's not just the federal government. Uh, increasingly, as you note, it's uh, governors and mayors who are leading the way right. towards sustainability, doing interesting and important things. And frankly, perhaps the biggest shift of all is from the business community being seen as the problem in the 20th century. Not that they're all performing well in the 21st, but there's a recognition that business can be a partner in terms of delivering a sustainable future. And that is exciting to see. And I think we are, are getting a policy now remade, uh, the government incentive structure re reconstructed uh, to engage the business community, to bring the consumer along, to help the investor who wants to put his or her money behind sustainable companies to be able to do that. And it's exciting to see these changes. And I think at the bottom line, all of it, is about giving us uh, new pathways forwards, really giving us a strategy that has got innovation at its centerpiece. And that does promise not only that we're gonna see more of what's being done, but breakthroughs that we haven't even thought about. I think that's so well said, and it's independent of ideology or, or political party. When you mentioned the mayors, I was thinking, shame on me, I'm so glad Dan brought that up. As we run an annual mayor's college, where you can't tell, they're half Democrat, half Republican, you really can't tell who's what, uh, on sustainability issues and others as they talk about them. It's like Mayor LaGuardia of New York said, there's no such thing as a Democrat or a Republican sewer break. You just have to fix the problem. F uh, uh, Bedford, Massachusetts, Fall River, Massachusetts, uh, uh, cities in, uh, in, in Indiana to Texas that have made incredible strides. Uh, this, uh, just thinking of Fall River, they've gotten rid of the incandescent light bulbs, coming out with much more energy sustaining light bulbs for all the public streets and things. Incredible innovation that's happening. Uh, in the city level, in the state level, and uh, you're so right, it doesn't have to be uh, a top-down approach, that a lot of this innovation, uh, things that I was skeptical about, that you believed in, that were bottom-up initiatives at Goldman Sachs and at Walmart, I was afraid they'd be greenwashing. And it turns out you were right. They were the real deal, and this was, uh, and they were not top-down, top-top supported them, but there were ideas on recycling and things that came up from the bottom. Or, and Walmart's a good example, uh, we have seen Walmart establish very significant sustainability obligations for all of its suppliers, and in doing so has raised the game of 60,000 companies that sell to Walmart, uh, 40,000 of whom are in China. So it really has been a remarkable change, not only within our own country, but spilling over around the world. And of course, we constantly need to raise the standard and anticipate a, a world where even tougher uh, environmental expectations are gonna be in place. But it does seem like we've got people thinking in new ways at this point. I think that's a really important point about Walmart and the ripple effect that that had too. As such a, a, a business leader, a brand leader, uh, that people follow in the way, because you think there, there are ways where business needs to set the path now. If we celebrate this business roundtable statement, it's on the sustainability frontier where they have the chance to prove it. Like those energy companies and automakers, I said, can they put their money where their mouth is, and, or is it just going to be platitudes? Those guys are putting their money where their mouth is, at least for now. But that's what matters. But also, when like-minded companies uh, on these issues come together, they create some political protection for each other from reprisals, either politically or whatever, that that, that helps, that, they, that kind of protection. 
but they also can share the research. And we've talked about some of these examples in our discussion now of how they can collaborate on best practice research findings and things that are not collusion, that are not anti-competitive, uh, but in fact are leading to much sharing the innovation across companies. Uh, but also as they, they set a great model for others to follow the downstream effect on consumers or suppliers to, in, the, in the Walmart example, to match that I think is, is, uh, is a, you know, a really a, a important additional a lesson out of all this. And it's so much more interesting than getting caught up in some of the mindless metrics. We have great colleagues who do fantastic work on dashboards and, and, and how you measure these things, and that's important. But sometimes in the, in the wider ESG area of environmental and social governance standards, Sometimes the metrics, uh, it's like a Heisenberg principle, they start to overtake the phenomena itself because it gets so caught up in the measurement, we lose sight of good sense initiatives and might not fit into somebody's rubric, but in fact should be celebrated, even though they didn't get coded. I, I guess, uh, I don't know how much more we can get into other areas, but the role of, of consumers in Gen Z is enormous here. I'd like to think that our generation uh, you know, had a big impact, but frankly, the Woodstockers uh, that uh, that are starting to retire now ha have surrendered a lot of their values in office. And uh, you take a look at, at purchasing decisions, how influenced they are. It's 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 11, 12, always less than 15 percent in the research. Uh, you jump ahead to millennials; it's maybe 20 percent of millennials seem to be heavily guided by. Uh, when you look at Gen Z, which is uh, you know, I, I hate a lot of these uh, generational cohort cliches, but it's overwhelming. The, the social image of firms in terms of the recruiter decisions, the recruitment decisions they have in selecting an employer, but also their purchasing decisions as a consumer. It's everybody's research that shows as a minimum 40% of those employees and consumers of Gen Z really care about these issues in a big way. So Jeff, I wanna thank you for this conversation because it does indicate how many pathways to a sustainable future are now being blazed. And I think it's exciting to see the range of players that are doing that work uh, from the business community to the consumer and, and so many other places. And it does make me feel very good about this book that we've now got into the marketplace, A Better Planet, 40 Big Ideas for a Sustainable Future. And it is full of ideas, full of creative thinking about how one gets to where we need to go. And a Yale University Press book to boot. Um, and it's a joy to have so many of our colleagues having contributed, but not only Yale professors, folks right. from all across the country. And it tells me that there really is an appetite for getting into the substance of these issues, getting beyond the political battles and really thinking about what it's going to take to deliver up uh, a decarbonized future, a transformed world, and one that fully is sustainable. So thank you very much for joining me on this Yale Environmental Dialogue podcast. It's really a pleasure to be able to go back and forth over these issues, and I look forward to continuing the conversation in the months and years ahead. Thanks and congratulations. The Yale Environmental Dialogue is produced by the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Music is by Ben Cosgrove. 